G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Well, to use some of those baffling terms I mentioned, the world is going undergoing a geopolitical restructuring and human transition on a scale that may be unprecedented. The challenging news for every one of us is that we are not immune What we're seeing today did not happen overnight. Some of the mega trends from the 20th century are only now being understood. Rapid population growth, along with mass migrations and the unprecedented growth of the world's biggest religions, including Islam and, might we say, including Christianity and the rise of nationalism. Well, these may be leading us to a very different world in the days ahead. So how do we make sense of what's happening in this changing world? How does it affect us here in Australia? Do we have any possibility of making any sort of inroads into affecting how these changes might uh, might play out? Well, let's talk with our special guest for this hour, Elizabeth Kendall, who has been working as an international religious liberty analyst and advocate since 1998. She's just returned from a major conference in Africa where she was one of the special guest keynote speakers. Elizabeth Kendall is an adjunct research fellow in the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology. She's also Director of Advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom. Elizabeth Kendall, a special welcome back to 2020. And thanks for having me again, Neil. Elizabeth, let me start by just exploring some of the things that you would have been involved in and indeed immersed in at a conference of Christian leaders in Nairobi, Kenya, and you're only just recently back from that conference. Uh, Give us a little insight into what that was all about. Well, the conference was uh, convened by the Strategic Prayer Network of Mani. M-A-N-I. Now, MANI stands for the Mission for African National Initiatives. And what it is, it's a bit like Australia's Missions Interlink. So it exists to provide a platform for all the different groups that are involved in missions in Africa to come together and network and cooperate with one another uh, for the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission uh, in Africa. And um, so it works like that. So what the Strategic Prayer Network is one of its arms. It's like a group within the group. So what we had at the conference was um, uh, there were many heads of mission organizations. So like uh, African Inland Mission was represented from a number of different countries. Uh, There would have been about 12 to 15 different African countries represented and people from uh, Africa as well as from the UK and the USA and some a few Western missionaries, a, a, a German and a Canadian and a few French. So it was quite a diverse group and they're all focused on really prayer 
for mission. And the convener was a pastor, uh, Austin Uktaki, who's been involved in prayer movements and mission for oh, 30 years probably. So he's been involved as a leader in the National Day of Prayer for Africa and in the Lausanne uh, Commission. And also he's got a real key interest in praying for unreached people groups. But he's been receiving my prayer bulletins for pretty much the whole 20 years, I think. So he's acutely aware of the rise of persecution in the world. And he's very aware of how uh, the situation in his country, Nigeria, is part of this bigger trend. And he's also acutely aware of how many African uh, pastors and even denominational heads and heads of missionary organizations are actually uh, maybe in a bit of a bubble and not really aware of the global trends and the reality outside of their own country. So he was very keen to have me come and speak uh, to the group. It was a great honour. I, I was really delighted. Well, one of the special things just to make note of, and I'm aware that uh, you had a session that was the Elizabeth Kendall session, and... Uh, so moved were they when you began to share in some of the global trends that were going on uh, that they manoeuvred things to create an extra special session for you to uh, expand some more and to take uh, Q&A from the audience. Uh, yes, this is, this is how right. interesting people were, in, in how interested these mission leaders were in the things that you were sharing. Look, you know, it wasn't even, with that first, my first session, so my first scheduled talk was on global trends in persecution and religious freedom. And because the subject is so vast, I decided just to really focus on the trends that impact Africa. So I spoke a lot about those global trends you mentioned of, of um, population growth, migration, urbanization, the, the changes in demographics and peoples and the religious changes. So the revival of fundamentalist Islam, which is now in a collision, on a collision course, or is colliding with the phenomenal growth of Christianity in the non-Western world. Because all of this exists, you see, in the context of religious, of the cosmic religious conflict and religious um, battle that's going on in heavenly places. Now, as I, I spoke about I spoke about Islam, I spoke about Islam in the world, not just in Africa, but I kept coming back to Africa. And I think the one, the thing that really sort of the, the uh, emotion that came through was less one of being deeply moved and one of being flabbergasted. <laughs> so many of the, uh, in fact, I would say that the, the people who had come from northern Nigeria, from the Somali border, from Ivory Coast and other places where they live with these issues and they live with persecution, they were so appreciative that this, that this subject was on the agenda. They were so appreciative that I was there and that we were talking about it. It was like a great relief to them. And for a lot of the other delegates, this, they, were, they were learning stuff they had no idea of. They had no idea. They just didn't really realize how bad it was. They had no idea about things. So what happened was at the end of that first session, my first scheduled talk, it was a one-hour-long session, 
they um they decided the delegates decided that they would um come back early after lunch an hour earlier they wanted to know about other places like china in fact they said china and india and fortunately you know god is so good because i had been i think god had prompted me in my spirit as i was preparing to prepare two short little powerpoint presentations one on china a shortened version of one I have given before, and similarly one on India, so that if questions were raised on these countries, I would actually have a really decent little PowerPoint I could use to answer questions. So we came back an hour early after lunch, and I gave another one-hour session focusing on China and India and uh, answering more questions and really they were just flabbergasted because um, these things are not in the news there's very little awareness awareness and I mean we know that that's the case you know in the western church and it was the case there too so I wasn't entirely surprised it was mainly mainly the believers who were outside of the persecution zones who were not aware but even even the pastors who were in the Muslim areas had not a lot of understanding of per, like persecution in China or or other places. So it was great to have that extra session. It makes your capacity to have a global overview so, so valuable. And you come into a context like you did in Africa and as you've got mission organisations all diligently working for the glory of God and in the kingdom of God. And as you use that terminology, uh, cosmic spiritual battle, mm. they're, all, they're aware of these are missionary people. They're not unaware of those sorts of battles, but to actually put two and two together and see where this actually uh, connects uh, with the physical movements and the trends that have been going on now uh, since uh, through the 20th century. Uh, let's come to some of those trends and we'll, we'll, we'll touch on Africa, but perhaps just global trends for a few moments, Elizabeth. As I mentioned uh, earlier in that, uh, that introduction, the rapid population growth. I mean, we all know that the number of people in the world is continuing to grow and there are flashpoints uh, with mass migrations and uh, with the growth of religions like Christianity and Islam. And there are clashes and conflicts and uh, some of these perhaps yet to be seen in a bigger, bigger and more substantial way. Give us some insights globally as to those sorts of trends that you identify are causing many of the things that we understand today as being serious concerns for Christian believers. Well, one of the first things is, as you said, the population trends. So after World War II in particular, so from the 1950s and into the 1960s, um, our, our advances in the Western world in particular of, in terms of food production and health care meant that more people would stay alive. People would live to be older. Uh, children would survive childhood. Less women were, di- were dying, in, um, dying in childbirth. And we can feed more people. So you have this situation where there's rapid population growth. Basically, the world population growth skyrocketed. It, it exploded from about 1960 onwards. So the population of the world in 1960 was about 3 billion. Today, it's about 7 billion. That's huge. That's more than doubled in my lifetime. So this is a big thing. And, and a lot of what's happened has also led to mass migrations. So, for example, 
um, this is this is something we see in Africa big time because the desertification of the Sahel, right? So that's that the strip that runs right through uh, the center of Africa there, just just south of the of North Africa and and uh, north of the uh, the sub-Saharan regions, the Sahel, has, is turning into desert. And there's many reasons for it. And one of the consequences is that the people who have lived there are migrating into the cities. And they're migrating south. And they're mostly Muslims. And they're mostly tr traditionally nomadic people whose lifestyle is being, you know, lost to moder modernity. And they're moving into the cities. And what that means is in a city like Joss, which is right in the fault line, what I call the fault line, um, a city like Joss in central Nigeria uh, now ha is really crowded. Um, it's just been flooded with people who have come in. Many, most of them are Muslims from the north, are traditionally nomadic people from the north. And what you have is this crowded environment where people and of different faiths and different ethnicities and cultures are now competing for resources, for land, for water, for food, for jobs and for political power. And so tensions escalate. So this is happening completely without any reference to religion. It's just the, the pressure of population and well, migration and urbanisation. Now, when you throw into the mix... Yep. The religious changes, yeah, that's when things get uh, really dicey, and that's why we're seeing an escalation of religious conflict, particularly in Africa. It's because Islam, a revived Islam, is meeting a growing Christianity. And in these tense cities, it's spilling out as religious violence. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. It is a fascinating and important conversation. Our special guest is Elizabeth Kendall, International Religious Liberty Analyst. I'll just mention a couple of books that Elizabeth has written. Her first one was called Turn Back the Battle. Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, and it's about how you deal with persecution. The other, after Saturday, comes Sunday, understanding the Christian crisis in the Middle East. Elizabeth Kendall, as we talk about some of the issues that you addressed at this conference in Africa, uh, you also brought a biblical response to persecution because the people you were talking to were facing persecution in very significant ways. What did you tell them about what they should expect and how you respond as a Christian? Well, having established the reality of persecution, yeah, we looked at the biblical response, how to respond biblically. So for me, the, the response is that we speak up, right? So from Proverbs 31, uh, 8 and 9, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And that involves our advocacy and just our conversation, just to keep the subject alive so it doesn't become invisible. The next thing we need to do is give generously, and I, I take that from James 2, uh, 15 to 17. If you say to your brother, you know, uh, you know, have faith and be well and don't give him what he needs to survive, what good is that? We really need to give. And, and as I pointed out, we're living in an age where we have hundreds of thousands of Christians 
are living, uh, who are displaced and living in abject uh, poverty and devastation because of their faith, whether they're in northern Iraq and they've been displaced by ISIS or right through to the Central African Republic where they've been displaced by Islamic militants of Salika and right up into northern Burma where they've been displaced by the Burmese military. There are hundreds of thousands of Christians who need us to give to help for them. My third point was that we need to go. We need to go as missionaries into these areas. We need to go into hostile areas because they, they do this, that is, they persecute you because they do not know the Father or me, right? John sixteen three. So we need to take the message to them. And then finally, we need to pray, because this is a spiritual battle and requires spiritual weapons. And I pointed out that there are four... Before we can do those four things, we need to overcome four obstacles. The first one is ignorance. So we have to get our people, that is Christians, believers, churches, informed. So we need to get them you know, signed up to Christian media and, uh, and to the Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin and things like that. We also need to deal with fear. The fear that I especially see in pastors, that you know, if they encourage people to get involved in praying for the persecuted, it will be a distraction. Uh, and, and they won't be giving as much to the church or things like that. And, and what I say is, no, no, no. Uh, it's nothing to fear. When you take on the burdens of the persecuted church, you do not compound your own burdens. You displace them. And so this fear that, oh, my goodness, we'll get negative feedback, we'll get bad, you know, bad stuff will happen, uh, it, it doesn't. Uh, it's, this is nothing to fear. The other thing we need to combat is that misunderstanding that persecution is good um people say oh the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church persecution is good for the church who am i to interfere with it and they use it to justify their inaction and i tend to say no you know the the church grew during the early church period during tertullian's time the time that quote was made because uh, the church continued to witness. The church in, in Carthage, where Tertullian was, survived, but it did not survive the coming of Islam. Persecution can crush the church. It can crush it. But as far as I'm concerned, persecution and the blood of the martyrs works much like the blood and bone I put on my garden. It makes it fertile and ready for the gospel. It makes it receptive so that when you scatter the seed, which is actually in the Bible, Jesus says the gospel is the seed of the church and the sower goes out to sow the seed of the gospel. It hits that ground with the blood of the martyrs and the tears of the intercessors and you have growth. So persecution and hostility and danger is not a sign that we must disengage and flee it's the opposite the exact opposite the god is making the ground ready and receptive for the gospel we must go and the uh, the last and most important thing i believe is the obstacle of people's sense of helplessness you know people look at the world and, and the, the situation in the world the situation in North Korea, the situation in Central African Republic, and they just think, well, this is too big. 
it's too much and it's just so hopeless. And I reminded the, the delegates there that on good, that first Good Friday, the apostles, the disciples rather, felt that everything was hopeless. And on that first Easter Saturday, everything looked lost. But that's not what happened. And then, because then came Sunday and resurrection was there. And I reminded them that this is the model that the Lord has, has put in place. This is revelation about how God works. We have a God who comes and deals with our problems. He comes right into the middle of the conflict. He comes into the war zone. He comes into the darkest places in this world and he deals with our sin and he deals with our suffering. He's not a God who's far off. He is there. And he calls us to come and be there with him and work with him. So if we can overcome these four things and then go ahead with the, the other four actions, I believe that we, it, it will be world-transforming. And I believe that God is doing it. God is doing amazing things. Even today, even though it looks like Easter Saturday, it looks like God is dead and the world has won, no, God is alive and active and, uh, and the resurrection uh, is ahead of us still. For every anyway, one of yeah. the challenging stories, uh, there will be undoubtedly uh, the most inspiring things that are happening in the world. And uh, we're not focusing on those inspiring things today. I imagine, Elizabeth Kendall, on your recent visit to Nairobi in Kenya at that conference, you would have heard amazing things that have been happening too because uh, we hear of revival conditions in so many of those African nations. Uh, there are a lot of good stories that balance the bad. We're focusing on the bad today because uh, we can easily try to sweep those aside, put them under the carpet, hope they go away. If we ignore it, maybe it'll go away, but that's not the case. Uh, this is the time to dig in, isn't it? Well, absolutely. And, and the thing is, the bad stuff doesn't happen in the absence of the good. The bad stuff, the persecution, is pure satanic reactionary stuff. <laughs> It's all reactionary. It's a reaction to the growth of the church. It's a response. And so I actually framed all of my first talk within the framework of the cosmic spiritual battle. So I started with uh, the Old Testament story where David goes up against the Philistines. The Philistines only came against David when he expanded his kingdom. Right, That's when they moved against him. And the first thing David did was he prayed, and he prayed and asked God what he wanted to do, and then he obeyed God completely. God broke through his enemies. David gave God all the glory and called that place Baal Peretzim which means the God of the breakthrough. Elizabeth, we're going to have to take a break here. We'll continue our conversation after the news. Elizabeth, let's come back to a thought that was really coming to the fore before we had to cut short and uh, take a break for the news. You were saying something very significant that much of the persecution that we're seeing when we're talking about this in the context of a cosmic spiritual battle is coming in response to what we might identify as a move of God because we hear so many good things 
uh, there are incredibly bad things we're hearing that seem to come against those good things that are happening. Uh, how do we really maintain an attitude as Christian believers in Australia of perhaps not getting too defensive and fearful about these things, but keeping on the front foot, knowing what the context is? What are your thoughts? Well, the thing is to realize what God is doing in the world today. And being, being involved and engaged in mission is really important. Now, and, and I always frame my talking in, uh, in this framework as much as I, as, well, always. I always do, because I see it as integral. Uh, persecution is part of the cosmic spiritual battle. It is a response to the growth of the church. This is the devil fighting back. So um, as I was just saying before the news, I framed my talks in, in this context. So I opened my talks with the story from 2 Samuel chapter 5 of David going up against the Philistines. They came after him when he expanded his kingdom. And when they came after him, David prayed, David obeyed, and God broke through for him. And David called that place, the place of the battle, Baal Peretzim, which means the God of the breakthrough. And I said to the delegates, I said, so if you're praying for a breakthrough today, remember God is the God of the breakthrough. And at the end of my talks, I referred to one of my favorite writers, a French theologian, Jacques Ellul. Now, Jacques Ellul actually was in the French resistance during World War II. And in one of his books, he makes this wonderful statement. He said, during the Second World War, the worst violence actually occurred after the decisive battles had been won. And he identifies Stalingrad on the Eastern Front and the Battle of El Alamein in the Egyptian desert as the, as the decisive battles that actually, at a strategic level, defined the course of the war. It was over from that point. This is 1943. Then he said, while all the, general, well, the generals and the chiefs of staff knew that the trajectory was now, you know, the Germans were, were defeated, they were on the, on the way out, no one on the ground knew that. No one, the soldiers didn't know it, the rank and file, and the civilians didn't know it. And everything to, to them just appeared to get worse. Because what happened was the Germans now were sort of lashing out madly. They were, they were, uh, there were mass exterminations in the ca concentration camps. It was a time of rash orders, uh, of mass, um, of mass, uh, uh, movements of captured people so it's all over the place. He said it was the worst and dangerous and most bloodiest time of the war. And he said it is exactly the same in the, in the spiritual battle of which we are a part. The decisive battle was won on the cross. And all that's happening now is we are waiting uh, for the devil to admit his defeat and surrender. And he's not going to do it. He's not going to go down without a fight. And he is lashing out with the energy of despair, as if he's saying, I'm going to take, if I can't win, I'm going to take down as much as I can while I'm going. And he said, so we are actually in the bloodiest, most dangerous time of the war. But we must never forget that the decisive strategic battle has already been won. 
And in the context of this, I like to show people who I'm speaking to, uh, there's a wonderful uh, uh, image. Um, I, I think WEC might have put it out, or the Lausanne might have put it out, on the global spread of Christianity. It's completely unique of, amongst all world religions in that it has spread globally. And this is actually a new phenomenon. This is one of these new global trends. Wow. Really only from about the 1960s with the rise in our day of indigenous missions and indigenous missionary movements has Christianity become truly global, a global religion. Okay. And, you know, this to me... As soon as I see the map, I think Genesis. You know, I think God's promise to Abraham that through Jesus all the nations of the world will be blessed. I see his promise to fill the earth with the knowledge and the goodness of the Lord. I see his promise to build his church. God is fulfilling his promises in our day, and the devil is not taking it lying down. So everything is in that context as far as I'm concerned. Well, that is an amazing thing to hear because if we understand uh, from the uh, idea of there being a cosmic spiritual battle that God is fulfilling his purposes in the earth, uh, then we ought to anticipate that there is going to be conflict because uh, to the end times ideals that people will have from their understanding of scriptures, uh, there is a, a flashpoint that is coming and there is a sense in which uh, the purposes of God are being fulfilled. It's where we place ourselves, no doubt, in his purposes, whether we're hiding and cowering in the corner or whether we're actually on the Lord's side and fighting as a soldier in the battle. This is the sort of thing I, I imagine that we need to place ourselves in the right context here, Elizabeth. Absolutely, and realising that we are on the winning side that the, the decisive victory was won on the cross. And, uh, you know, and uh, the, the devil is on the way out. <laughs> we are on the winning side. All we have to do is persevere, we have to endure, and we have to continue to have faith and to go out with the gospel and to support one another through this persecution. You know, it's one thing to look into the future and say, oh, well, you know, the church will be victorious. The church needs to support each other and sustain each other. And it's my very, very firmly held belief that as the church does this through persecution, that God knits us together in a very wonderful way that actually is a fulfillment of the Lord's high priestly prayer that we would become one. So once again, we see the whole principle of our suffering being redeemed and used for his glory in answer to prayer. Elizabeth, let's take this another step deeper here because you delivered some especially bad news at this conference that you were keynote speaker for in Nairobi. And that is with the intensifying of the persecution that is happening in Africa and is happening in nations all around the world. And great context there to appreciate that it's what God is doing that there is a reaction against. But one of the pieces of bad news that you delivered to Africa was that the West 
is not so interested in helping you in your persecution context. Mm. Uh, Let's spend a few moments here just discussing why that would be the case because some people will say, oh, it's okay, Uh, leaders of governments around the world have got this covered. Uh, Why would we need to be on our knees relying on God? Uh, What are your thoughts on how things have moved and this drift that the West has away from supporting Christians who are under this sort of intense persecution? Yes, this was part of my first uh, talk, Global Trends That Really Impact the African Church. And this trend of the West's drift into cultural Marxism is something that not just impacts Africa and, and, and us, but it impacts persecuted Christians the world over. Because traditionally the West has been a great uh, advocate for religious freedom. But, and this is what really struck and hurt so deeply the Christians of the Middle East. Uh, this is what has shattered them during the course, you know, of the wars in Afghanistan, in, um, in uh, Syria and Iraq. The whole idea that the West was not supporting them, that the West was even arming the rebels, that the West was throwing them under the bus pretty much. Um, they really did not realize the degree to which the West has drifted uh, into a neo-Marxist position uh, where uh, most of the West's political and academic and media elites hold cultural Marxist or neo-Marxist views on social issues, on religion, even if they don't realize it. They're, that's what their views are. Right, Marx uh, was opposed to marriage. He was opposed to family. He was a, he believed in free love. He believed that there should be no morals because there is no God. And, I, you know, we're just about there. When I said in the conference, I said, you know, we're just about there in the West. We're just about Marxists. One of the Americans who was there said, oh, we are there. We're there already. And uh, he's right, but most people haven't really woken up to this yet. And if we were bringing an an immediate Australian context to the point you're making here, uh, right now as we speak, Mm. uh, our government is debating in the Senate uh, these provisions about religious freedom for Christian religious schools in Australia. This is very significant even on our own shores as we speak right at this very moment. Yes, and what people need to understand is that this, this is not just politics. This is not just a political party saying, we have this ideology, let's see if we can push it through. They are surfing. They are riding a wave of social hostility, and it's a hostility that arises out of the, uh, the indoctrination that people get through their education, through the media, through entertainment. It's all about the, the fact that the long march through the institutions, right, so the subversive campaign of the leftists, of the Marxists, has been, you know, really successful. They have managed to infiltrate all our institutions while we have been happily sunbaking or whatever we've been doing. They have done it. They have captured our universities. They have captured uh, pretty much the public school system. They uh, have captured the media largely and entertainment. You can't turn the television on now without getting positive messages that actually, whether people realise it or not, have their roots in Marxism. 
and in atheistic Marxism. No God, therefore no morals, therefore free love with whoever and whatever you want. They don't realize what they're looking at. And there's consequences to all of those things which we occasionally unpack on this program. Elizabeth, given that time is short, I don't want to miss... Uh, the opportunity to ask you, uh, given that your understanding of these global trends has developed to a quite a significant maturity, what your thoughts might be for the future and perhaps some predictions, because when we talk about genocides and uh, the challenges that come with uh, persecutions around the world, I suspect you're going to say they're not going to die out and uh, be alleviated by any easy means. What are your thoughts uh, for the future, what we ought to expect perhaps over the next year, over the next decade, uh, given the trends we've been discussing? Well, in terms of Australia specifically, I would say that um, when you put all these things together, when you put the success of the long march through the institutions, so the success of the Marxist Marxists to ideologues to subvert our institutions, the success of that, the, the uh, uh, you put that together, and we saw that in the same-sex marriage campaign, that was the fruit of it. We also have to look at the, the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse uh, and the fact that so much of it focused on the church and that the, the, the abuse, particularly in the Catholic Church, really captured the imagination of the masses right at the same time that marriage equality was, you know, sort of was, was rising. We're, we're in this day where immense hostility and the, and the moral authority of the church has been shredded. And I actually believe that the church in Australia is going to enter like a period of exile, like we're being driven into exile for a time. But that's not an entirely bad thing. It's a time when you regroup and you rethink and you work things out. It's a time when you are refined in the fire. And uh, it's what we do in this time and how we handle it that's really important. Well, Likewise, Elizabeth... globally... I believe that the future is actually very bright and it's how we handle this time that's important. Well, I'm mindful that when the children of Israel were taken into exile to Babylon, that was a period of 70 years. Mm. Uh, I suspect that if you discuss this idea a little more deeply about a period of exile for the church, uh, it's not something that I guess can be turned around in a, in a short space of time. I suspect there's uh, quite a long uh, period in exile that may well be ahead, but that doesn't mean we do nothing. Even if we feel like we're in a place of defeat, uh, no doubt there is something we're called to be a part of when it comes to national and global issues as well. What are your thoughts about about how the church regroups from what may be a period of exile? Well, I believe that the church has actually been fairly lazy for many decades as we have sat very comfortably in the center of mainstream culture. And that's not where we are today. So if the church is going to stand up today, we won't be going with the flow. We'll be getting hit in the face <laughs> with the stream that's flowing the other way. And uh, we will be countercultural in every way, shape and form. And we have to be prepared to do that with courage and boldness and with conviction that the gospel is true, not to lose confidence in the gospel, 
but as people start suffering under the effects of what of what uh, the the new culture is offering them in terms of you know change your gender every year and and uh, change your you know spouse every few years you know, if, as, as the as the culture starts to suffer the church is going to have to be confident that it actually has the solutions so we need a church that is going to be diligent now really diligent in growing in its ability with its apologetics its its witness to the gospel its display of godliness uh its alternative form of living which produces something good and wonderful that people start to to really recognize so that's really important and i think in in the global at the global level the church needs to come together and look after each other and uh by our love uh, the world will see that that uh, Christ is true. This was also part of the high priestly prayer, that when Jesus prayed that the Father would make us one, that the world might believe. And I believe that as the church comes together, united in its persecution and in love for one another, praying for one another, giving for one another, caring for one another across ethnic and denominational lines, that that prayer, that high priestly prayer is going to be answered, the church is going to be knitted together as one that the world might believe. So I have a very high view of the future. I believe the future is very, very bright, but it rests on the church. The power is in the hands of the church to respond rightly in these days and in this century. I believe this is a critical century for the church. And interestingly, uh, we well, we talk about the cultural Marxism uh, having uh, influenced the West. Uh, you've got the rise of Islam and that persecution in so many of those African nations and uh, through Middle Eastern areas. Uh, a weak church has no uh, capacity to confront uh, all of these things. So when we talk about the idea of revival, people coming to faith in Christ, I suspect revival would need to be accompanied by a real mobilization, a strengthening of the church in such a way that it can actually fulfill the mission call that it has what are your thoughts for for what you know new revival times might look like as, as we have an optimistic view of the future uh well precisely you know and um you know sometimes god really su- surprises us one of the things i found deeply moving at the conference was um was a uh, there were a, a, a represented two representatives from a team that had come down from near the Kenyan-Somali border, a real persecution hotspot where there have been large massacres of Christians and they're working there amongst the Somali Muslims at risk to their lives every day. And one of these missionaries has been doing this for like 30 years and the other for about, about 10 years. And after he spoke about what God is doing amongst the Somalis, and you know, and and even in Mogadishu, in the underground church, uh, a whole lot of delegates gathered around him to pray for the team up there on the Somali-Kenyan border. And as they prayed, he just put his face in his hands and wept and wept. And I thought, wow, you know, this is a picture of, you know, of, this is really it. 
you know, God is doing some amazing things with Somalis coming to faith, even underground in Mogadishu, and and even in these really dangerous, dangerous areas on the border. God is at work, but it's hard work. And here's here's someone whose life is on the line to do that work. And what he needs is our prayers. He's a frontline fighter in this war. He needs us to sustain him, to bring him before the Lord, to give, to pray. And, you know, that's all he asks for. And I just believe, I honestly believe that God is doing something amazing. And, that you know, eventually, even with regards to Islam, I think we're seeing little leaks at the moment, but eventually that dam is going to be breached. And I believe that there will be a, a massive... Are flowing out from the from from that dam. Uh, someone said to me once, a, a Coptic missionary in the Middle East once said to me, "If there's ever real freedom in the Middle East, it won't be long before there's not a Muslim left." And you know, the chaos that is building in the Middle East is actually giving people more freedom than they've ever had, which is why we are actually seeing Muslims coming to. Christ in numbers that are unprecedented in all the years of Islam. And um, people don't realize that either, how unprecedented this is. And as I said, at the moment, it's like the dam has little leaks in it, but the dam is still full of fear, real fear and real repression. But the day is coming when that dam is going to really be breached and the flow will be uncontrollable. You read Amos chapter 9 and you see this prediction that in the future the harvest will be such that the harvesters will not be able to keep up with the planters and the sowers it will be just so everything will be moving so quickly and you know those days i believe have just begun and they're still ahead of us and that the solution to everything i believe is with the church it's not with politicians it's not with politics it's with the church because god is fulfilling his promises and we just need to sustain one another and uh, and to do what God has called us to do, to be well, the church he calls us Elizabeth, to Elizabeth, this is a high note we are ending on today uh, with a very serious conversation, a very significant prediction that there will be hard times ahead. But when you talk about things in the context of what we were discussing as this, uh, this idea of a... Uh, of a uh, uh, when we talked yeah, the about the the cosmic spiritual, spiritual war, battle, yeah. uh, this is a very encouraging thing. I want to point people to elizabethkendall.com. Uh, you can get access to a whole bunch of resources there that Elizabeth produces that give you real insight into things that are happening globally. Elizabeth's been working as an international religious liberty analyst since uh, 1998. Those two books that I like to mention, Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, and After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. They're available at all good Christian bookstores, and you can also get them at elizabethkendall.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts on these things once again today on 2020. And thanks for the opportunity, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.